Right? Wow. And so, so that the team, it was funny because I, I, when I submitted this, the team, they like, they, they triaged it like immediately. And I was like, wow, that was like, <laughs> I was like really fast. And I went and I talked with the engineer who happened to be on site. Cause this was at the Shopify office. And, uh, he, and he was like, oh yeah. Like as soon as I, I saw like your write up and I saw where the like line of code that you pointed to, I realized like that we had made the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> We're rolling. Joel, the time has come. This is your episode. It's mobile time. Are you excited? <laughs> yeah, dude. This is this is gonna be awesome. I'm I'm excited to to talk about all this stuff. Yeah, me too, man. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, we are talking this week with I don't know, it's kind of like you're a guest, but you're not really a guest, you're a co-host. We're talking with Joel and we're picking his brain about a bunch of mobile stuff. And to be perfectly honest, um, you know, the original reason I was gonna do this episode is because I just have a ton of questions for Joel about like mobile stuff. So um, we're just kind of gonna go down that route this week and see what, what crops up. So, all right, the cannons are loaded, Joel. Um, first question coming in hot, Apple versus Android, man. Where, where, where are you at? That, this doesn't even related to hacking, just I gotta know, what, what do you use? Yeah. So. Look, I'll um I'll try and keep it short, but basically I I've used both for many years. Uh, I was a loyal Android user. I am now an Apple user. Um and I think just the main reasons are like I, I mean, very cliché. Ecosystem, you know, like Apple iCloud. It's all like very nice. I used to be like heavy in the Google Google ecosystem. There are pretty much one-to-ones for like everything. But um I just found that I didn't need the the things like the 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 like super user th- like abilities that i guess i would describe it as that you have with android where you can do like pretty much anything that you want apple it's a lot more restricted unless you jailbreak your phone and all that kind of stuff android you can kind of so just do you out not of the box do you not run a jailbreak broken iphone you just uh, out of the box iphone yeah no that uh for me that because if you're running a jailbreak that means that there's an exploit out like you have to have a zero day essentially to uh, yeah to, to install the jailbreak so um that's just my personal security posture is i'd rather run a fully secured up-to-date device i have separate devices that i use for testing that are like i keep them on old versions so that i can leave them jailbroken sure no that makes sense i i you know while you while joe was talking there just a second ago i was stabbing myself in the heart and then twisting it a little bit because he he left he left the the Android environment for the iOS department, uh, you know, environment. I'm kind of a kind of a deserter, but no, I, I'm big on the Android side. You know, I do see the appeal of iOS. I really do, but um, yeah, Android I think has got my heart, and Pixel in particular. I think they've really stepped it up. Google has over the past couple of years. The UI is really good. Um, you know, very very consistent products that they've pushed out. Haven't had any problems with those. So um, that that. That's where I'm at, but you know, I, I see where you're coming from as well, for sure. And, yeah. and with the Pixel stuff, there's actually, did you see that Pixel, um, it's actually been out for a little while now, but did you see that Pixel lock screen bypass that came out a couple months yeah, ago? Yeah, I did. Uh, it was on, I think it was on Twitter initially, but there, there's a there's a I'll blog post somewhere. We, we could throw it in the, in the notes yeah, for yeah. this episode. But yeah, that was a really, really crazy bug. I will say like, 
50% of the time, no, not even that much. 20% of the time, I'll just be like using like a product that I use like every day. Like, yeah. you know, and I'll just like start be like, huh, that's like kind of weird. And I'll like poke at it some more and I'll like find something by accident. Yeah. Uh, I love this write up because I mean, that's exactly what was happening. He was just swapping out his SIM card and like he he's just <laughs> chapter two. What just happened is what he's got <laughs> in his write up. <laughs> and I love that. So it's a big part about the hacker mentality is like if you if you are aware of, you know, what sort of things can happen and what sort of things shouldn't be happening and stuff like that. When you're just using your apps on a regular basis, you'll start seeing stuff that's kind of like, oh, that's kind of sketchy. Like like even actually without going into the details for this podcast, I've been looking at, um, you know, some analytics and some stuff like that. One of the one of the um, let's just say I'm going to keep it real vague. One of the entities that we use, uh, you know, has a bug bounty program. And I was poking around um, just looking at the analytics and such. And I can feel the bugs, dude. I can just feel them. So, it's, it, you know, it's going on my list. And I think that's a big part about being a hacker is just kind of, you know, keeping your eyes open for that sort of thing. And then the nice thing about companies actually having bug bounty programs nowadays, as we're seeing them, you know, pick up traction is that you can just Google it and be like, oh, wait, they do have a bug bounty program. And then you can scratch that itch of like, all right, I actually can go hack this product that I use all the time, which is really cool. Yeah, 100%. And even if they don't have a bounty program, most of them have like some sort of security email that you can reach out to. And like stuff has just gotten a lot more progressive with yeah. regulations, just like generally across the globe, like regulations have changed like a lot of this space um, and made it just like safer and easier for people to do research, security research. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm looking at this write-up. Um, I don't know if you've got it open, but it mentions a PUC code. Do you know what that is? A PUC? No, I don't think so. Is As that I something for like for sim sim migration? Yeah, I, I think it is. I entered the puck code and chose a new pin. So yeah, that seems like it could be an interesting attack vector for other phones as well, potentially. So definitely something to go after there for any mobile hackers listening. Um, all right, so got that got that easy peasy question off the table. Let's dive in a little bit. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of different pieces of of mobile hacking, right? There's static analysis, there's dynamic analysis, there's a lot of custom stuff, there's API stuff on the like custom stuff to mobile hacking. I mean, um, <clears throat> stuff that you wouldn't see other other places. And then there's like API hacking, which is pretty much the same as if you just had a um, you know web application. So I kind of want to jump through some of these. Um, where, where do you start normally when you have an app? Let's say you've got a scope, you've got an Android app, you've got an iOS app in scope. Do you, which way do you go? Yeah, so I like to do a little bit of just sort of like familiar familiarization, I guess is what I would call it. So like generally I want to launch the app a little bit, make sure I have credentials or I'm registered or whatever, right. tap around, explore, get a feel for you know, it's the same things that you would do with any like web app, right? You want to get an understanding for what are the product features? What are some things that might be juicy to look at? Um, you know, where, where are the parallels for maybe if there is a web app, are there features that are in the app are, and the mobile app? Are you that starting, aren't on the web app? are you starting Android or iOS typically? Uh, yeah. If so for both. me, for me, I prefer Android. Um, mm -hmm. and I can get into why, um, a little bit, uh, mostly it's just due to the ease of reverse engineering. Um, but, uh, for both, you, you can do this for both. Um, there are decompilers for both. The one mm. thing to know about Android is that, um, because it all runs within essentially a Java VM, um, the Dalvik VM, or I think it's art now, but, um, 
you know, essentially it runs in a Java VM, right? So you can decompile it back to Java. And there's this Java bytecode as like an intermediary language that you can decompile to the actual source code. Not like one-to-one yeah. source code, but, you know, it's it's very straightforward at ASD. So, so I'm going to hop in here for a second because this is something that I actually know about. Like this is as far as my, my mobile hacking knowledge goes. So you get an Android APK. And, and correct me if I'm wrong anywhere along this along this flow here, okay? You get an Android APK, you can do this from just simply Googling like APK downloader and giving it the package name. Download that bad boy. And, you know, an APK file is just a zip file. So we un, we could, we've got a couple routes we can go here. You can unzip that guy or you can use APK tool to, what would that even be? Like unpackage it maybe? Yeah, so, so one thing to note about the way that APKs are packaged is that the resources get encoded. Um, so it's not in just like plain text. If you were to unzip like an APK, you would have a similar folder structure to probably what you're used to from decompiling mm -hmm. it with APK tool or JetX or something like that. Um, but what you'll see is that if you try and open like an XML file, it's not it's in like binary and okay. like there might be some readable portions, but it's it's not easy to read. So that's a lot of what APK tool does is it will mm. correlate, it'll dec decode those binary resource yeah. files into plain text XML. Now that XML... I want to say it's called like deflated or inflated XML or something like that. And I've actually seen that in other areas. Is it the same thing as like sometimes in like a SAML signature or something like that? It'll have that XML. Do you know? Or was it like some sort of proprietary Android thing? That's interesting. I, I actually don't know that that's something very interesting. I haven't heard heard of it being used anywhere else. I've only ever seen it in Android. Yeah, but, I've um... definitely seen it in like a SAML environment. And then there was this weird, I forget what we were trying to reverse. Oh, I think it was actually something related to an Android app. But this is back like way, way before um, when I was beginning hacking, I was like, I have this file that I needed to extract text messages out of. And it was like, in some sort of weird encoding and a friend of mine was like, ah, oh, just like deflate it. It's XML. Mm. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? So that's another, that's another cool tip. And I think, I think a lot of times we see, you know, we get these data, we get data and we don't know what type it is, you know, what, what way it's encoded and stuff like that. So just being aware of all these various possibilities is, is really helpful. So definitely check out XML deflation inflation if you, if you can, but bringing it back around to the Android thing. So APK tool is helping us, um, you know, de, de, what would you, I maybe deflate depending on whether yeah, it's using it yeah. or not. The Android I wouldn't manifest. even call it decrypting because it's not, yeah. I, as far as I'm aware, there's not like a key to it. I would just call it like decoding, basically decoding the XML, the resource files. Nice. Okay. And the resource files are also um, whatever, you know, encoding there is there. Yeah, yeah. So resources is kind of generic, but basically, if you think about an Android app, there's a couple different components. There's like the source code side, like the yes, Java. Yes, tell me the components. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you have like the code, right? That's right. actually like, you know, you push a button and it does specific actions. And then there's like layouts and strings and stuff. And that's okay. what's stored in the XML. So um, at like a low level, any app, like screen on an app, like your the login page or whatever, you open google you see a tab right all that stuff is referred to as an activity and those activities are defined like vis visually they're designed in xml so they have different xml components that says like this is a button and that button has a string login okay, gotcha. right and when you click it it you know that might be assigned in code sometimes it's assigned in the xml but usually it's just like the layout of of the screen and like how stuff is like actually like displayed like 
this is a button. It has the okay. style. And the string, so that's, you know, layout.xml, and there's some other XMLs for that. Um, Strings.xml, is that just like reused strings throughout the application? Is that something that you have to define as an Android developer? Is that something that it automatically does for you when it compiles the APK, or how does that work? Yeah, so that's something that you, you define yourself, and you sort of decide okay. um, what goes in there. Um, you, I think you can actually reference them from anywhere. Yeah. So, so you yeah. can do like R dot ID or, you know, R dot like get string, um, and you can get like the resource strings, but a lot of times what you'll see them used is, um, it'll be like at string slash yeah, and then a name. That. And that's how you, you basically, it's, it's like a cleaner development essentially. So instead of having a bunch of hard coded strings, and like mm. you said, if you're reusing a string somewhere else, um, then usually you just refer to it by the ID and then the ID would go in a strings file and that's also useful because um there's like localizations right so if you have an app that yeah, has multiple different languages yeah. then it refers to the same id it just uses a different that's why you'll see like val uh like values dash en values dash fr mm. right? like because those are the different languages and each one will have its own like strings.xml that has all the translations gotcha and so inside of strings.xml we are looking in there for obviously you know we've done this a little bit leaked secrets and that sort of thing um, what, what else are, have you seen in there that's kind of juicy? Yeah. So at one point, I don't actually know if I made this, this pub, this tool public, but, um, I have toyed with writing a, a uh, like a entropy detection script essentially. Mm. And so basically what it does is it looks at all the strings and the, the keys and the values, and it tries to find high entropy strings. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of similar to what, um, truffle hog used to do. I think, uh, I think it was truffle hog. Yeah. It's truffle um, hog. Where, yeah. Where it used to basically look for like interesting strings that are like, you know, this has a potential to be an API key essentially, mm. or, or something like that. Right. So things that are not just like generic. Like if I replace, you know, like common English words out of a string, what's left that that's kind of, it's a very like dumb system, but you know, it, 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 it works That'll do well it. enough. Yeah. There's, there's a Python um, library. This we're going down a rabbit hole now, but let's dive in. There's a, <laughs> there's a, uh, there's a Python library called word ninja, which I use for some of my uh, DNS enumeration stuff which also does some cool stuff like that. It can recognize words within strings without delimiters based mm -hmm. off of like dictionary, you know, probability patterns and stuff like that. Um, so it's, yeah, but I think the way Truffle Hog did it, that was really cool because I think they did a statistical analysis on like the frequency of, you know, vowels and consonants within different words and stuff like that to help determine whether something is like, you know, a random string or just, you know, a combination of a bunch of words. So, and there's a lot of other complicated stuff too, but that's, that would definitely be really cool. Yeah. Like you said that there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down on like analyzing text and seeing how like English or like, you know, readable it is essentially mm -hmm. because there's there's like letter frequencies so if you think about like the english language words there's a certain frequency that like the letter t or the letter e shows up like more frequently than the letter z does right and so there are defined like average frequencies for mm. um for how often a letter should show up so you can do this thing called frequency analysis where like if the number of t's in your string lines up pretty closely to what the number of t's overall in the english language should be then you might have an english string and sure so, i bet yeah. you use this in puzzling too sometimes all with the time like, yeah, yeah i i can see it in your eyes you know like <laughs> you get so excited about these sort of things so no okay that makes sense that's really cool so okay yeah. we've got the we've got the values and we got the strings.xml um i think strings.xml is one of the more well-known things to check when you you know um unpack a apk file um android manifest.xml um, as a sort of Android hacking 
uh, let's, well, I'll call myself an intermediate. You know, I won't say I'm a newbie. I'm an intermediate. Uh, yeah, you've but been I doing this long I, enough. I, I've, I've done it. I've done it a couple times. I've been around the corner a couple times, but um, I still get confused when I look at uh, Android manifest.xml from time to time because there's so many Android specific pieces of jargon and stuff like that in there, like exported and uh, you know all sorts of these things. So tell me how you approach an Android manifest.xml file. Yeah, so Android Manifest has a lot of like useful information about how the app is structured, mainly around like um, things that should be exported or accessible from other apps, um, like the main screen of your app, like what is it going to launch, um, any like inbound schemas, URL schemas and stuff, stuff like that. Like, So if you wanted to run Spotify, for example, I'm almost certain you could just do like Spotify colon slash slash. And that would, you know, launch the Spotify app, right? Okay, and, so and that schema you, is defined inside the Android manifest.xml? Yes, exactly. So uh, actually, I think you can also register. There's there's this uh, this article that you linked um, about exploiting deep links from... Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, we're going to... Don't you worry, Joel. We're going to get to that. I have plenty okay, cool. of questions about that article. <laughs> cool. But yeah, so so there's a couple ways. App links, I think, is is the other. But that I believe that has to be HTTP and HTTPS. So okay. yeah, primarily, a custom schema is going to be registered within the Android manifest. Okay. So so one of the things that I, I want to try to do when I'm doing static analysis of these is I, I want to go in here and I want to know where the code execution flow starts. And so that happens inside of android manifest.xml i think and i don't remember the specifics of that so you should talk about that but also you should talk about where the code execution flow starts in service based apps like stuff that you would see on uh, iot devices so two of those questions go yeah sure so um typically there's like if you launch the app like it's going to launch the main activity and so there is okay. a specific there's a specific qualifier that you put on your main activity um, that tells it, or that tells it like this is the the very main activity that should be that should be run like when I launch the app, um, okay. and I think it's actually they just call it like main, like the you know it's like uh, I think it's one of the category or something. Android intent action main is that it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. the action main. Yeah, so I'm just grepping through a Android manifest.xml file right now for main. Yeah, exactly. And that goes in, in the intent filter, um, which okay. we'll, we'll talk about intent filters a little bit. Um, I don't know what that means, Joel. What is it? <laughs> yeah. What is an intent filter? Yeah. So intents, I mean, we can go down this, this now if you want. So intents are basically how apps talk to each other and apps talk internally as well. So if you want to launch uh, a different activity, you want to start a different screen on your app, you would do that via an intent, right? You would start okay. the activity, you'd craft an intent that says, I want to so launch this activity. Here's what is an intent filter data. though? So an intent filter basically says, these are the types of intents that I'm able to receive, right? So for, for example, oh. in that URL schema thing that was linked, there's, um, there's, a th there's a special URL schema called an in like intent URLs, right? And it's intent colon mm -hmm. slash slash. Mm -hmm. You can add class names, you can add you know, different paths, all that kind of stuff. Um, and essentially what that lets you do is it lets you launch intents from the browser. Um, now, the only real caveat with this is that the target intent, the target activity or whatever, you know, where, wherever you're sending your intent, it has to have the browsable um, action on it. So it has oh, to, okay. it has to be defined as like 
this is safe to launch from the browser. Otherwise, you can't launch an intent to just launch any app. Okay. Otherwise, that would be interesting. Weird. So, yeah. so yeah, I was thinking when you said that, I was thinking that sounds pretty like a pretty good attack vector, right? Because we can, I'm, I'm almost thinking like CSRF or maybe even like bypass, you know, uh, access control bypass sort of things where you just trigger a specific intent inside of a, an app um, using that, that URL, but it has to be, it has to have the browsable um, attribute on it or is that? What yeah, it has browsable? to have the, the the browsable category on it. Okay, uh, category. Um, on the filter. So I just linked you, um, there's a Chrome developer doc page that, right, that this explains out. this, but basically it says that only activities that have the category filter uh, browsable are able to be invoked as it indicates that it's safe to open from the browser. Okay. Right, so nice. I, I think way back in the day, like early, early Android, it, like early Chrome, early Android, it used to be that you could just launch any intent. Obviously that created some problems. So yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, so actions and categories, those things go in. So, okay, so let me, I'm just going to, I'm going to repeat it back to you. Intent filter, those are the kind of intents that a certain activity, which is like a screen on your app, um, can handle. Is that correct? So the intent is like, well, it, it actually, it's kind of aptly named. An intent is like an intent. It's some sort of action. And that is managed by an activity. Is that fair to say? Or like executed by an activity? Yeah, so it's mainly used Handled. for three things: for three things, starting a service, starting an activity, and delivering broadcasts. Right. So, Ooh, like okay. broadcasting data, like send broadcast. If you want to broadcast intent to other apps to be received by like services or things that are passively observing, like um, for example, if you take a photo, there's broadcast intent that gets sent out that says there's new media that's been added to your device, so mm. that things like um, photo apps know oh okay there's a new photo for me to index even if you're not in that app otherwise you would open the app and it would do like a bunch of work on, on the on the front on the ui thread right so there's a couple different uses for it but yes generally intents are for communicating uh between app components okay which and is then, mainly activity services broadcasters and then there's so there's android.intent.action.main that's one of the you know in I guess, actions in an intent. And right. can I just define my own custom actions as a, a Android app developer? Yeah, so so the action basically, uh, I think you can have custom actions, um, but it, it basically just says like what it's intended to be, like what, what it can receive. So like, is it like a launcher thing? Like, um, and I think there's probably a list of actions somewhere. I, I know there's a default list of actions that you can use, like main, for example. Um, okay, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, we could probably look that up. So we can see which, and then the categories is sort of like a modifier for that. Um, yeah, okay, here we go. I can see it here on the Android docs. There's some There's some mentions of these. Android action underscore main, action underscore get content, action underscore view. Right, so like action.send could be an action, category.default could be a category, right? So so that would be like, oh, I just want to send, like be able to like send plain text data to this. Um, and, and the third thing that the like third intent filter qualifier is data, which basically- Okay, so like we've I got said, action, it, it defines, category, data. Yeah, and it says like, should it be plain text? Should it be, you know, whatever? Um, and it can also say like, you know, whether or not it should be uh, like what host it should be, what schema it should follow. So that's how like intent schemas are, sorry, URL schemas 
are defined within the Android XML is that you would put like, you know, this data scheme host needs to be this within the, the intent filter. Okay. 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 So I'm going to, I'm going to say it back to you. Intent filters are, um, a definition of what kind of intents a certain activity can handle. Um, and then there's three components of that. There's an action, which tells us like what sort of actions happening. There's a category, which gives us some sort of like modifier for that, um, action. And there's a data piece, which specifies what kind of data that is going to be passed along with this intent. And then that data is stored where is that in the extras? Yeah. So the data would, would get sent in the extras essentially. So data is also where you would specify like, oh, this should be able to receive Spotify as the Android scheme on this intent filter. Okay. So the scheme is a part of the data. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And you, you can also specify data type there. Um, a lot of this is optional and there's a really good do um, documentation page I'll link to you Yeah, um, with that. from the Android developer docs that talks about I like how you had that filters like, in an intense on speed dial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, if you read through the docs, you'll, you'll find that like much like any other documentation, there's a ton of like nuance and like specific interesting mm -hmm. things about how stuff works. Um, so like, for example, ex exported activities or exported services, right? So th that basically means that it can be called from outside of your app, um, which obviously opens things up a little bit to attackers, potential inbound untrusted data, right? Um, by default, if you have an intent filter, uh, that exports your activity unless you've explicitly marked it as false, right? So if you don't specify whether or not your activity or component should be exported and you have an intent filter on it, it's implicitly exported, okay? Ooh. Okay, guys, let's just pause here for a second. Let's let's we love implicit things in in hacking. So you, Joel, what you're saying is even if there's not an exported equals true, if there is an intent filter on it, then it's exported. So yep. we can trigger that activity from a malicious app or maybe even from a browser. Yeah. Yeah, so so the like again, the the thing to to note is that there's one caveat which is recently android 12 or newer you can't install an app that doesn't explicitly define intent filters or sorry it doesn't explicitly define whether or not it, it's exported so uh, if you try and add an intent filter and you don't say this is or is not exported explicitly it won't it won't work dang. on but that's like newest android i think right isn't okay yeah isn't android 12 see. like fairly recent Dude, yeah. I mean, even as an Android user, I don't, I don't really know. I'm gonna check on my, on my app right now on my phone. Uh, it was released publicly October 2021. So yeah, it's only yeah. like a yeah. couple years old. Uh, so. Actually, I'm on, I'm on Android 13. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so yeah, depending on on your phone, depending on you know how old it is, I, I there's probably a pretty large market share. I'm pretty sure Google actually has public numbers that you can look up for who's using what, like what percent okay. is using what OS. But um, yeah, that's the only thing to keep in mind. But if you do see an activity that has an intent filter and it's not explicitly n false exported, right? It's n it's like not being exported. If it's not explicitly not being exported, then it is being exported implicitly. Okay. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up here a little bit and, and kind of try to deliver it back in some concise way. Yeah. yeah. So we, we open up, we uh, unpack the Android uh, APK by using APK tool. 
Then we open Android manifest.xml. We're reading through that. We see all these various activities defined. Those activities are various screens or maybe pages, if you will, within the Android app. Inside of that, if an, if an um, intent filter is defined for that, then that activity is implicitly exported uh, or explicitly exported, one of the two. And then we can trigger that activity a, from an external app and we can pass in an intent to it uh, as long as it complies with the intent filter. And that intent can have um, data in it in the form, uh, wait, no, it can have an action, it can have a category or multiple categories, and uh, it can have data type. And that data gets passed via the extras. And using that, there's a potential attack vector there for us to attack that app. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And yes. if you look, yes. And if you look at the code, you, you'll see how intents get used pretty frequently. Like if you're looking at your Android manifest and you see, oh, this activity has a, an intent filter on it, um, then typically you can go to that activity in the code directly and you can see, oh, like this is where it is receiving the okay, intent. How do, I, how do I track that back? Uh, so the name, I believe it is, on the activity will tell you like what class. So like the Android name will be like dot main activity or something, and that will correlate one to one to main activity Java in your. Okay. All right. Hold on here. I'm gonna, this is this is important because this is kind of where I get lost sometimes. Is I see some cool stuff in Android um, manifest, and then I can't find it in the actual app. Um, okay. I'm going to send you this Android manifest.xml file and maybe I'll link it if it's actually helpful. Yeah. So when I open this, the first thing I search yeah. for is main, right? And you'll see activity, Android name, API demos, intent filter. Yeah, I see that. Intent.action.main. So that's, yeah. that tells uh, this is, oh, and launcher and default right, as the okay. categories. So that yep. tells it this is when you launch it, this is the default main activity. And that Android name on the activity, a API demos, that means that your class is going to be API demos. Okay. Okay. Because that, that like sometimes you'll in here, you'll see like com dot whatever. And that correlates to when I, I bring it into um, JADX GUI and like the package structure. But then sometimes it's just listed like that API demos. And I'm like, how do I even? Yeah. So if you scroll, if you look just right below that, where it says like, app.helloworld.app.helloworld. Yeah. So that's yeah. a short syntax, essentially. Okay. You would have to explicitly say the full package name and then the class. But yeah. if it's basing off the same package name as the app itself, then you don't have to do that. So this app package, uh, let's see what it is. What is it? Com.example.android.apis. Yeah, exactly. So com.example.android.apis. If you were to look at the source code, and you go into the source folder, there mm -hmm. should be, uh, let's see. Oh, are you actually yeah, package, like- Package, com.example, okay. yeah. So the, the API demos.java, it has the mm -hmm. Java package, com.example.android.apis. So that's why you don't have to, you could, it's one-to-one. -one. If you just were to write the full name out, you could say, okay, the main activity is com.example.android.apis.mainActivity. Dot, okay. Sorry, gotcha. But API it's using device. it's using this sort of shorthand, and is that could you tell that because it starts with a dot, or how does? No, because it I, because it doesn't have a full package. So oh, if it it's just the name, package. or okay. it has a dot, you'll see like dot app dot something, yeah. right? And that says okay, it's the folder underneath the package. So 
com.example.android.apis.app. So on. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so cool. So we've, we've found a way to trace our activity back to our code. We go to that you know piece of code and we can start reading through it. And um, what are those like launcher functions, create, uncreate, or something like that in Android? Yeah, so onCreate is a default um, activity thing. So whenever an activity gets created, it calls onCreate. So typically that would be where developers would put like any initialization for the view. Like if you need to bind your buttons to a function or something, like then mm -hmm. you would probably put it in the onCreate to select that button, bind it to a function. And then when the user presses the button after the view has been created, it does a thing. Okay, okay, so we can trigger that from launching the activity. And then inside of that on create, it will oftentimes or sometimes or maybe parse the data that we sent to it via extras and then perform application logic based off of that, just like it would if we were like C surfing something in a web context and sending um, HTTP parameters along. Correct, yeah. So for example, if you look at um, this app that you sent me, this yeah. example, APIs, de API demos, uh, in the on create on the main activity, it does intent equals get intent, right? So it's gets the intent. Okay, can and you then link does... me to that directly, actually? Because I, yes. I I don't know where it is in that whole breakdown there. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna link this for you guys as well if you guys want to follow along. But we'll try to make it. We're gonna try to make it as digestible as possible from an audio perspective. Um, but yeah, okay. Yeah. So basically, they get the intent, which might be empty, might mm -hmm. be nothing, right? And if it has this string extra, like we oh, talked about, that. you can attach data nice. um, with different names and stuff. It'll try and get it. It'll check if it's null. It defaults it to something and then it you know, does whatever, right? So um, you could, theoretically, you could create an, an intent that points to this app. You could set that com.example.android.apis.path as a string extra. You could set it to whatever value you want. And then it's gonna do get data with that prefix and it looks like uh it does some weird stuff <laughs> yeah it, it looks like it creates another intent actually and talks with the package package manager um yeah it passes it to get yeah. data here okay all right all right, all right. anyway so, we're getting so sidetracked but we're, yeah we're getting we're going down the code okay so pretty much what 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 you're saying there is then we look at the on create we see what it does with the data and then we can kind of now we're just looking at java code and we can kind of trace the code flow from there yeah exactly okay and that is one okay so what we're trying to define here is how do we attack android apps right like what kind of attack methodologies are there and so one of the uh, attack methodologies that we just kind of completed was going through the static analysis figuring out where you know uh what stuff is exported what kind of stuff has intent filters and, and what ways that we can interact with that stuff, and then tracing that back to the code, and then being able to follow that flow along. Um, and this would be able to do stuff like C CSRFs um, and uh, other, maybe even access control stuff, depending on you know what kind of logic there is within the device. Um, <clears throat> okay, cool. So that, that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> sorry, my throat just died. Um, no, okay, open. so we're, we're, we're good there. Now, now we're going to go back to that article that I said we were going to talk a lot about. So um, I'm going to link this article in the description, but it's a really cool article um, by Inez Martins. Um, sorry if I butchered that name, 
but uh, it's called Exploiting Deep Links in Android Part 1. And I was just kind of looking through in all these different like URLs, schemes that they have, app links, intent URLs. So let's kind of talk about these. So scheme URLs is the thing that I, I see the most, um, Joel, you know, that's like, for example, you mentioned it earlier, like Spotify colon slash slash. Um, and those you, you mentioned before, those get registered in uh, application manifest.xml, right? Correct. Okay. And then how do we trace that to code and how do we figure out how that works? Yeah, so the Android manifest.x, like those custom schemas, like we talked about, so they get defined essentially mm -hmm. within the, the data, um, the data field within an intent filter that says like, here's the valid schema and here's the valid host that can be received by this intent. So that way, if you want one activity to receive like HTTP colon slash slash example.com, versus HTTP colon slash slash subdomain.example.com, you can set those separately on the intent filter, and then they would get received by different activities based on those intent filters. Okay, so we, we define that inside of the data, the data, um, see, that's the one that was not yeah, in those the data sample, attributes. In yeah. the data attributes. Okay, that's the one that was not in the sample that I, that I pulled up. So I'm trying to find something so that I can get my eyes on this. Yeah, um, I think there's a good example. Let me try and find it. Yeah, yeah. So if you, I'll link it to you. It's on the Android um, developer docs about intent filters, but they okay. have at the bottom, they have an example of uh, a data intent filter. So they say that, you know, like I, like I mentioned, each data element, you can specify MIME type, uh, mm, mm. scheme, host, port, and path. So you could tell it like, I want very, very specific, you know, only this scheme host port path to be received by this intent, or you can make it just like this whole scheme. You can make it just this scheme and this host. There's a lot of different combinations. Um, and I, I actually, this is reminding me, um, I wrote a tool called get schemas. It's public um, on GitHub, on my GitHub. Mm, and yeah, it, uh, it basically, it parses the Android XML and it, you know, it basically prints out like, here's the activity, here's all the, here's all the intents and the schemas that can be received by it. And it just prints them out so that you can get nice. a better understanding of that attack surface. Okay, nice. Let me grab that really quickly and I'll put that in the description for you guys for the podcast. Um, but okay, so get schemas that allow that tool that you wrote allows us to pull the schemas out. And then it, so this is actually just a part of the intent filters as well. So this is actually, okay, you know what, Joel, this isn't that complicated. All right, we're, mm -hmm. we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, so now inside of those intent filters, we define the schemes and then we can follow those schemes. We can, you know, redirect the user to those schemes and that sort of thing to trigger certain intents, uh, which trigger activities, which get us back to the Java code base, uh, via the on create, uh, attribute within the Java code base. Okay. And just to be, just to be clear really quickly, we get our hands on the Java code base from the APK by doing what? Uh, yeah, so by de decompiling it, basically. So like I said, I prefer Android for this stuff because um, it's a lot easier to just like get source code out of it. iOS, um, typically your end result is not only encrypted by like a system like syscall that you have to decrypt on the device, but also um, it's a compiled binary. So depending on which phone you're using or which one you're targeting, it'll be anywhere from an ARM v7 binary to an ARM64 binary. Um, 
and you'll have to basically just decompile assembly code and read assembly code for ios yeah, that's not great which is yeah it, it there are tools that make it a little bit easier you just pretty good uh, hopper is an ios specific one that's pretty good um i'm sure that there's other ones out there like you know our uh red area and stuff but mm -hmm. um it's you know whatever you want to use but yes it's just assembly code whereas android like i said there's the jbm type java intermediate bytecode byte so you can get a .dex file uh, which is essentially the dalvik executable it has bytecode in it and then you the can the dalvik is that's the android yeah, java like the runtime android. yeah yeah okay. and then you would uh decompile that with some tool like jadex i prefer jadex um but there's a lot out there there's jd gui um mm. jadex fernflower procyon there's yeah, there's a ton of them. You can find them online. Most of them are open source and free. Uh, but like I said, I prefer Jadex uh, just because it has some um, deobfuscation uh, parameters that are pretty nice. Yeah, I, I, I use Jadex GUI when I do my uh, de uh, decompiling for, for that sort of thing. And it's really nice too, because if you don't want to use APK tool, Jadex will, you can actually just open up the APK and Jadex GUI will, will you know, unpack everything and make yeah. everything readable. So um, for those of you that don't want to, be cool and use the Jadex command line. There's a GUI version and you can just navigate the code pretty easily. I will say it does have some bugs sometimes when searching through big, um, you know, chunks of code, especially if you get over eager and you press the search button. And then what I do is I press enter again for some reason and there's no like items in the list, the search results, and then it just crashes the whole thing, which drives me uh, nuts. And I've got, yeah. for some reason, I've got some muscle memory for that. So I keep on crashing it and then you got to reload the whole thing. And it's like, ugh. that's a weird one. Yeah. I, um, I like to, um, just decompile it like with the, the CLI version. And then I open the whole folder in VS code or whatever your favorite text ah, editor is. And VS code. Yeah. Joel's, yeah. Joel's yeah, beloved. I'm not, I'm not even going to go. It, it, it's a whole other episode. It's, <laughs> We, we, um, just for, for context, we, Joel and I had recorded another episode and, uh, he literally went on like a 10 minute talk about VS code and like the history, <laughs> the history of IDs Cut that out. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was so good. It was really good, but I think, I think we should put that in a different episode. Um, but no, I'll, uh, I'll ask you about that, uh, on the next, the next time, next time we go into ID history with professor Joel, um, <laughs> All right, so okay, cool. So we've opened it, opened it up in Jadex. We're tracing. Uh, we're looking at our intent filters, our activities. Um, we've got a data piece of the uh, intent filter, which is going to allow us to define custom schemes and where they map. Then we look at the activity and we look at the activity name, and then we find that class in the decompiled Java code, and then we start from uncreate, and then we can map the code flow from there. And the way that the parameters are used. Um, which can be passed in, uh, are that's going to be in string extras, extras right? Okay. Not always string extras. So so extras okay. can have many different data types. There's like int extras, boolean extras, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, the extras on the intent is essentially where all that extra data okay. goes. And the I'm looking at line 43 of the um, API demos Java file, which I will link uh, in the description, and that says intent.get extra for those of you that are following along, you know, in on a computer. Um, yeah. That that will that's the kind of thing we should be looking for to see that our parameters, our attacker supplied parameters, are being parsed by the the app on the client side. Correct. Yeah, exactly. That that's it. Saying okay, I've received an intent. 
let me get the string extra or let me get an extra from it right in this case it's a string but yeah okay cool so that's uh schemes the next item in this uh exploiting deep links in android part one is app links talk to me a little bit about app links and what the difference is between schemes and app links and that sort of thing yeah so I would say the main difference is that app links are HTTP and HTTPS only, and they're defined on the server side. So okay. for, you can still define like HTTP and HTTPS handlers. You can make it, that's why like if you open, first example that comes to mind, if you open a, a UPS tracking link on ups.com, it opens the UPS app to that tracking, right? And how does it do that? Well, because they registered the HTTP and HTTPS handlers for ups.com to their app. Um, and they almost certainly did that through an app schema. Um, I would say that app links are a lot less common um, okay. than URL schemas just directly in the app. Oh, okay, but so you can actually, you can use schema or scheme URLs to register like HTTPS colon slash slash, you know, yeah. google.com or whatever. Exactly, and you see that oh. frequently. You'll, you'll see it frequently if you run like get schemas, that tool I talked about. Um, yeah. You'll see like a lot of times they just register like HTTP and HTTPS so that, if you were browsing to their website, it would open it in the app and it would handle it in a nice way that, you know, for example, like I said, you open a tracking link on UPS, it opens the UPS app to that tracking link. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So looking at this, that sort of makes sense. App links is, an, is another way to register these sort of um, ways for the app to take control, right? And ways for us to launch the app from an attacker's perspective, right? Yeah. Now the main, the, the other main thing about app links is that there's, it, it's associated with the certificate of the app, right? So I think it's, it's designed to stop two things. It's designed to stop some malicious attacker from installing, you have an app on their phone. They mm -hmm. either use the same app schema or they register one that's not registered. Mm -hmm. And then you get tricked into launching their app by, you know, doing something legitimate, right? So this would prevent that by checking the signature of the app to make sure it's what it is, since it's also, since it's defined on the server side, that means that only the person who controls the server can control that, right? So okay. it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a handshake where you're like, you know, this is the cert, cert I'm expecting, here's what it should be defined for, it reaches out, checks that before it does anything, but it means you need internet access, it means it has to be defined and maintained by the the company outside of the app so um, there, there are pros and cons to all of it but um again it's http and https only so it's not for like a custom scheme okay gotcha so if we're talking about custom schemes i'm just realizing any application can register any scheme host or path right so if i can if i have a malicious app i could register the spotify scheme and then try to steal information Right, so there's a there's a special uh, there's a special attribute or field that you can add to your Android manifest called uh, permissions, and essentially you can define custom permissions. So you could say com.example.app.myPermission, and you can also say on that it requires a signature level verification. Um, so mm. what does that mean? That means that just like with app links, the signature of the applications that are calling it has to be they all have to be signed with the same developer certificate. Okay. So if you have multiple apps that want to talk with each other, you can secure that by saying all these apps have to have this permission and that permission requires all these apps to have the same signature. Okay, okay. So so, so you've got two apps and in in the Android manifest you are defining a scheme that 
yeah, no, no, you, you lost me. So, so like, it, you know, the, those, those apps are signed with a specific certificate, right? That's a part of the process when you, when you launch an app in the app store. And then right. somehow that certificate is correlated back to the intent filter. Yeah. So when you define the permission um, within the app, you'll say like, oh, it has to have the, the same signature that I have. Right. And so if you do that, then if another app tries to call with that permission, the system will check, oh, is that certificate the same? And if it's not, it won't let what it What do you mean call with that permission? Like you create an, an intent that calls an, an exposed activity, for example, from another app. And if that activity requires you to have a custom permission, uh, that's it's set, got an intent filter that requires right. you to have a specific act, uh, permission. Yeah, I don't even think it's in the the intent filter. I believe it's actually on the activity itself. Let me just double check. Yeah, because there's a there's a different version of this for um for content providers, which we can talk about later. Ooh, um, yeah, but it has its own element for content providers versus i believe you just put the like there's a permission attribute like android colon permission or something um on the activity and that says like oh it has to have this activity to even or this permission to even okay and so you you're defining a custom permission there you're and that permission is what's securing that okay okay i'm seeing it now and those have to be signed by the same certificate those two okay gotcha Yeah. yeah Okay, cool. Well, that okay. how often do you see something like that? Like, is that pretty common? Or is that like, is this like, you know, top security? It's getting more common. I think like, um, it's not a default as far as I'm aware. But um, it's certainly an easy win, so to speak, if you want to like, mm-hmm. secure cross communicate cross app communications between like two of your own apps that are signed with the same cert. Have you seen uh, any way around this? Is there like any sort of like, you know, I can like caught make it as C surf to the other app or something like that. Like anything weird like that. If they define the permission and they aren't, they haven't specified that it needs to be a signature level mm. that, you know, that can often be a pitfall where they've defined the permission. They've said it needs the permission, but they forgot to say it needs the same package signature. And then anybody can use that permission. So then we could just, if it doesn't have the same package uh, signature, then we could just go and define that permission inside of our own app. And then, yep. okay, wow, that's pretty badass. Okay, yeah. sweet. All right, cool. So that that that's that. We've got some other areas we want. I want to go here. Yeah, intent URLs. Um, these URLs look super funky and I haven't seen them very much. They've got a bunch of different parts to them. Kind of talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is something that we we talked about um, a little bit earlier in the episode, uh, and there's a really good post on the Chrome Dev page. It's actually specifically under like the Chrome for Android section where they talk about it, um, because it's like it's implemented on the browser side essentially. It as far as I know, it's not an Android thing. It's a it's like a browser thing basically. Um, like a Chrome thing, actually. I, I don't even know if it happens in Safari and Wait, other mobile browsers. So it's only, it's, yeah. So we want to deep dive a little bit into this. Android intents in Chrome, it's inside of the Chromium um, yeah. uh, app for Android. And and is it using, you know, you don't see this. I, I guess Android is pretty much only exclusively using Chrome, so. Yeah, so I think by default, the, the default web view browser, default Android browser is oh, Chromium yeah. based. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, Chrome, I think is, I mean, it's Android, so Google, 
And then do you just define the different, I'm looking at this, this uh, link you sent me to the Chrome development documentation. And it's saying like there's different parts, package, action, category, component, scheme. These are looking similar to what we were just talking about earlier that now I sort of understand a little bit more now. So, okay, so this is not as mysterious as it was. So um, we can define specific package in scheme. Those are parts of the data um, that gets passed to a intent. Wait, yeah, so most of intent the, to an activity. Right. So most of this okay. correlates like one to one to the intent filters that we talked about. So nice. pretty much the package, I think, is the only maybe uh, the component too, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I think those might be the only things that don't like that aren't like one to one with like they exist as an intent filter parameter essentially. So what is um, but what are those? The, the action so the package would be what app like the package of the app name so like com.example. whatever. Um and then the component uh I don't think they actually talk about it but I'm pretty sure that would be like the the specific activity that you want to launch if you want to specify that. So Ooh. if you want to specify like I want to launch this specific activity nice um instead of relying on like a scheme or something right because those are the others there's scheme category action so sure, if sure. it's not falling within you know those three which it always I think I think it always should but maybe there's some funky well actually this there. would allow us to do okay but first of all this has to be browsable right we learned right right earlier. so that's that's the caveat we talked okay. about um only activities that have the browsable category like android.intent.category.browsable right it has to have that in the intent filter for you to be able to use this um because that indicates like this is safe to be launched from a browser sure sure okay gotcha that makes sense and if we've got, but if the browsable piece is there, then we can trigger any activity just like we would be able to do from an Android app, right? Because that's that's the thing. For me as a web guy, I'd like to create like a website that allows my POC to start, right? You know, they come to mm. my malicious website and then boom. Um, but some it's of these things, uh, yeah, it's yeah. what it's not. I hate to break that to you. No, what? so that's, that's the other caveat um, that they also, it's like way at the bottom in the notes, but it, it won't. It won't launch an intent URI if it's coming from a redirect and if it's ah. if it's initiated without like user action. So the user needs to like click a button. And okay, okay, it. but that's okay. So we can harvest a click. That's fine. Yeah. Um, harvest a click and then it triggers the intent, um, and then we can provide a little bit more granular um, uh, settings here. Rather, so otherwise we would have to create a malicious Android app and then launch an activity, if it doesn't have a scheme or something like that, then we'd have to create a malicious Android app and then launch an activity. And that's a whole palooza for, for me as a web guy. But otherwise, we could right. use this intent URL um, as long as the activity has the browsable attribute, which I imagine is not very common. But Right. And if you think about the impact scenario, going from like a browsable URL or like you know, a user loads my page and clicks a button is generally, even though it's almost the same, it's generally a lot easier for security teams to understand from, from an impact perspective than it is to be like, I need to have my custom app installed on the user's device because yeah. there's a, there's kind of a lot more involved in getting like convincing a user to install like a custom app or a malicious app, even though there could be an app takeover. Like there's a lot of scenarios, right? So but many like, things you can generally do. Yeah. it's easier to be like, they were on a browser page you know, whatever, like they ended up there somehow. There's a million ways that you can end up on some random page, right? Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So good, good takeaway here. If you're looking to launch a more 
granular Android-based attack and you don't want to build a custom Android app to make that happen, then you might be able to do it with an intent scheme if the um, if the browsable attribute is there. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Let me get back to my doc really quickly here. Let's see. This is going to be a long episode, dude. <laughs> I know. We had, to, we had to stop in the middle because we were running over. So yeah. it's good. Okay. All right. So that, that gets through those, those scheme URLs, app links, and intent URLs. Um, and C serves by a deep link. We already kind of talked about that. Talk to me a little bit about web views. Um, web views are a little bit different, right? Um, I guess you have them in Android apps and also in IoT devices. But yeah, talk to me about that. Yeah, so web views. So a web view is basically just like an activity that is a web browser, right? Um, typically, it's using the built-in like default system browser, which is like we talked about a Chromium-based browser. Um, but yeah, it's essentially the easiest way to like show web content in your app, essentially, right? So uh, best example I can think of off the top of my head. You're on Twitter, you're scrolling through Twitter, you click a link on Twitter, it doesn't open your browser, right? It opens, like, it slides up the, that web page inside the Twitter app, and then you can press done or whatever, and it closes it, but you're still in the Twitter app. You're not, you didn't switch apps all the way over to Chrome or whatever, right? So right, right. that's a web view, right? It, they're opening a web view to show that link that you've just clicked on Twitter in the Twitter app, right? And so web views can be like anywhere from like totally nothing to like total own the app, right? Um, there's like a lot of like variability in terms of what you can do with web views. The main things to look out for, um, one, is there access to content providers? Um, so you have to explicitly set, uh, there's a function you have to call to disable access to content providers uh, on web views. Okay, you don't disable so that, pause, you pause there. Them. What is a content provider? <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. So a content provider is is like uh, it's it's like a, an access portal to a database essentially. So you can you can assign like a local database from your app to a content provider, and then you can interface with that content provider to read and write data. Right. So, hmm, what's a good example? Um, probably something like uh multi-app type things where you don't want to be sending intents back and forth. You just want to like read data, uh, like uh, let me read this user's information or whatever from this database. And okay, so it's two apps that are talking to each other. You would probably, I mean, you don't, you don't have to, but you could use a content provider for that. You would map it to a database. And then you would, when you define the content provider in the Android manifest, you would use the, I think it's path permission uh, which is that specific uh, okay, attribute that you can add? It's like a, it's a whole separate element within the the XML tree on the ah, Android manifest. Dude, it's how do you find this providers. stuff instantly? Like we're we're talking about, and he's like, and then this link, boom, and then I think my Discord ding like like half a second later. Yeah, I, I I've got the docs page open because I knew I was going to be referencing a lot of links from it, so yeah. I just keep. Okay. I've so been going content, as a... content provider is a link to a database. Now, is that specify? I mean, when we say database here, we're talking about like, like MySQL, or we're we talking about SQLite. We, we... Yeah, like SQLite. Yep. Okay, and and um, is that does this interface with Java at all, or is this a native like you know Android XML sort of thing? 
Yeah, yeah. So content providers, they're kind of like services where like they the code like exists and it kind of runs in the background, but it's not like handling stuff asynchronously, so to speak. It's more as they're more there as just like a data interface. So you can like read and write data to it. Um, you can also specify like um, with this path permission thing, you can specify like permissions specifically that you would need to either read or write data. You can set different permissions for those, nice, okay. set it for like a whole path um, and all that kind of stuff. So if you're attacking an app, it's always interesting if you see uh, a content provider, especially one that is lacking permissions or has incorrectly configured permissions, like we talked about with um, like the package signature level, um, then that's always maybe a, a juicy attack target to start looking at. Okay, so that's another that's another path we can kind of go down is this whole content provider attacking a content provider. And would we do that if it doesn't have correctly configured permissions, we would have to interface with that content provider from a different maliciously installed app? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. Uh, well, other than like the web view thing. So like, okay, yeah, yeah. Right. So like web views, there's a content provider. There's like, a, I forget what the exact syntax is, but there's a content provider. I think it's content colon slash slash uh, that you can access content provider data directly through like a URL schema. Um, and if you have access to that from a web view, then potentially you can chain those things together. Check you might out. be able to write like HTML and then load it from the content provider or something like that. Okay. So the, the content, so we can actually... Yeah, there's content URIs here. I'll send you. I'll send you the documentation this time. Perfect. <laughs> um, content URIs. So there's content colon slash 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 authority slash path slash ID. Those are the different path or parts of this URI. And then we would we can only interface with this from within a web view, not from within a a browser on Android. Is that correct? I'm not sure I would. So the thing is, like we talked about browsers on Android or like it, it's really well, I guess it would like just Go be another web view. Yeah, it's like Google Chrome, right? So it's like, can does Google Chrome allow you to, to do this? Mm, probably not would be my guess because of security reasons. But web views, like I said, if you don't explicitly set the uh, call, the call the method on the web view creation that says this doesn't have access to content providers, then it does by default. Dude, that's clutch. Okay, we love by default things, so paying yeah. extra attention there. So if if they do not specify, let's see, what is the thing that they need to specify? Uh, let's see if we can find it. So Yeah, it would need to be um, the user's permission. And or when you define the provider, you can put it on... Um, you can set like read and write permission. It doesn't have to be on the on the path the path permission uh, element. Gotcha. So this is another type of URL that we should be aware of for attacking these sort of things. Now, have you ever seen? And this this might just be a naive question, but have you ever seen? So say I'm in a web view on a different app. Let's say I'm on a web view on Twitter, right? Um, does that web view have the ability to interface with exported content providers from other apps yep it does okay so i can just boom yep and what as it, long yeah. it needs to be exported and it needs to not have permissions set for reading and writing or it needs to have permissions that you can bypass okay so if the permissions that those would also be defined in the android manifest yep okay solid 
that seems really like a attack surface I had no idea that existed before this episode. So I need to be looking at content providers and then I can inter- interact with those via the content URL. Um, and then I pass in an authority path and ID. What, what do those things do? So the authority and the path and the ID are basically what you want to be accessing, right? So um, the authority is like the string for the, that identifies which content provider. So all content URIs like start with that. Um, sure. And it basically has to be like, it, you're supposed to use like your package name essentially. Gotcha. Um, or like the provider's class name to make it like fully unique as the authority. And then the path is, you know, tables, one or more tables. It's kind of like a directory structure. You could think of it that way. Um, and then the ID is like the numeric row that you would want to access. Gotcha. Wow. Okay, cool. So this is definitely, and would I, if I was just, for example, in a web view on Twitter, trying to uh, attack a content URI um, or a content provider in a different app, would I just use like fetch for that? I mean, how does that? Uh, yeah, so it kind of depends on the on the scenario. Like I said, you, um, sometimes you would use these to be like more creative. So if you had a way to write content into a content mm. provider, and then that content was being pulled later and rendered as HTML, that could be You could XSS, get an XSS right? within a web view or something like that. Okay, exactly. interesting. Exactly, without, ha- but again, like it, I think that would be like a pretty edge case because generally if you can already load like an arbitrary URL, you could probably just load your external URL. So maybe we're talking about a scenario where they're checking what URLs are being loaded and they only allow the content scheme generally, or like maybe content provider, their own content provider, right? But Mm. there's a bug somewhere else that lets you write to their content provider. And so you could do it within sort of different bounds. So it kind of depends on when you like what, what other things are going on, but it's just a good thing to know that like, oh, this exists and maybe I can read data from it. Maybe I can write data to it. Maybe I can use it later. Nice, dude. That is definitely something I knew nothing about before I came into this episode. So that is that is super clutch. I'm definitely going to be looking for content providers in my uh, Android apps that I assess. Um, so go- going back to web views for a second, there's another part of web views uh, that I think is really interesting, and that's the JavaScript interfaces. Um, you can now. I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to explain this. You know, stop me if you need to. Uh, but essentially, within your Android Java code, you can register um, Android interfaces for web views, right? So web views being the little browser that's inside of your app. Then, <clears throat> let's say, for example, there's a way for an attacker to open up an attacker-controlled page inside of a web view in an app, um, you know, in, in your victim app. Then the attacker could use that interface, that JavaScript interface, just like a function, right? And this is literally just a function in JavaScript, like, it, uh, you know, maybe even binded to window or something like that. And then it can just call functions. And what that will do, you know, it, it's in, on the JavaScript side, but it will actually trigger the Java code in the Android app. Is that right? Uh, yes, kind of. So ba- basically, you ha- yeah, uh, yes, I mean... Yeah, it's a bridge, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a bridge. Like okay. you, you, you call like it's bound explicitly, so you have to say JavaScript is enabled, and this JavaScript interface is bound to this variable. Then these specific methods are exposed. You have to uh, put a decorator on them at JavaScript. 
uh, I think it's at JavaScript interface or something like that. Gotcha. Um, and then you can call those methods through that exposed bound variable. Okay. So one of the things we want to, so add, I think it's, I think I've got the, might've beat you to the documentation again here. I think it's called add JavaScript interface here. I'm saying to you right now. Hold on. Correct. Yeah. And I actually sent you, um, I sent you a link to the, um, the setting, the, uh, set allow content access. Oh, nice. Um, okay. In the web view. So that basically says whether or not they can access content providers, uh, from the web view. Oh, nice. Okay. That was the thing we were talking about before for content providers set allow content access. So actually this is an explicit thing. This is something that they have to do. It's not something that's, oh no, the default is no. enabled. Oh exactly. my gosh. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why would they do that? Yeah. So oh it's the other gosh. way around. And I, 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 uh, file your URIs are like this as well. Um, where by default, uh, it has access to file URLs, like file. Yeah. Yeah. So the default is true. Um, but it's for like, it's one of those things where they fixed it later. So like Android Q, which, uh, I think is like the latest one, right? That's Android 10. So not, okay. not the latest, but close. Wow. I'm really falling behind on my alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, yeah, so Android 10 and later, um, it defaults to false, uh, or sorry, it defaults, sorry, 10 and later. So yeah, zero through 10, one through 10, whatever that's yeah. by default has access to file. URLs. So you're, you're telling me that in Android zero through 10, you could just, if you open something in a web, you could just read arbitrary files. Or is there the like same cores and or is there cores and stuff like that on there? No, you could just, oh my gosh, unless there was like dude, an explicit no. thing that was stopping you from, yeah. And then Android 11 and above, uh, it, it's disabled by default, but wow. you'll find that people enable it and add interfaces and all that stuff regardless, wow. right? Okay. So we should, in order to find these, we should be looking in the Java code for, um, <clears throat> Just look for any web view class. So like whether or not you should look, it's if it's extending the class, that's fine. Um, if it's just creating a new web view instance, that's also fine. But generally you just want to look like where are they creating the web view and where are they setting any permissions that it has? Are they disabling content provider access? Are they disabling file access or, or enabling file access? Um, are they adding a JavaScript interface. If so, what class does it bind to and what variable does it bind to? Nice. And then, what, what kind of inner like interface do you have access to there? What kind of functions can you trigger? Yeah, exactly. Cause there, um, and, and then obviously the hardest part is like, how do you talk with it? Right. How do I get sure. my content in this web view so that I can then talk with the interface load files, all that. Right. Yeah, that is going to be the tricky part. So if you can find a way to get your URL opened inside of a web view, it's not necessarily going to result in a vulnerability, right? Because that happens all the time with Twitter and stuff like that. But that does give you a pretty good launch pad to start doing other attacks. Right. Like maybe you could read, um, maybe you could read system preferences. Maybe you could read um, a, a file that's in a restricted directory mm, only mm. accessible by the app. Maybe you could read from the content provider. Maybe you could call a JavaScript interface. Um, the JavaScript interfaces can be really dangerous. I've seen a ton of different examples where there's a like broad sweeping functionality from the JavaScript interface because they like the team will be like, oh, we don't know 
we don't know what we're going to use this for yet so we'll just make it able to do a lot of different stuff Jeez. generically and then you could like launch activities or you can start intense or you could send pop-ups on the phone like you can do like a lot of different things because there's not like explicit restrictions in place um and those are like pretty juicy but again you have to find a way to get your own content into that web view so that you can actually start interfacing with the javascript interface dang dude that's pretty baller okay so we want to be on the lookout for javascript interfaces and then um also them just going back to content provider thing for a second um any references to uh the file piece in the or actually no that that's just that's a, a separate from the content provider just that what function that says disable file access right yeah yeah there's there's um there's a couple different like uh methods that you would call set on the allow web. file access yeah right like set allow file access set allow content access um wow it's crazy to me that set allow file or set allow content access is still defaulting to true yeah yeah it's a uh, <laughs> it's definitely pretty wild um like set set like net block network loads like there's a there's a bunch of different um there's a bunch of different things and you should definitely check out the android developer docs and just yeah. read through it and see sort of what's available and what they all do and what their defaults are um, uh, yeah because... all, all of these are on website okay so this is what you were saying earlier we should instead of just maybe you know searching for these specific functions we should look anywhere that there's a web view sort of defined right and yep, then exactly. go, go there read all that code and see if they're if they're you know disabling content providers or if not what we can access or if they're enabling file system access or something like that right Right. And it could be that it's extending like a web view class, or it could be that it's like a, just a generic web view, like the built-in one that they're creating mm. and just setting settings on. So I would just look for instances of the web view class um, and just go from there. Nice dude. Okay. Yeah. Definitely getting a much better understanding of how this works now. Um, the only other thing I wanted to shout out here while we're on the web view slash JavaScript interfaces front is um, you see this a decent bit in IoT devices, right? Um, these JavaScript interfaces inside browsers. Um, so don't don't let it, especially you know these sort of IoT devices that are running Android. Actually, yeah, exclusively those. Um, so definitely, definitely check those out um, as you're as you're looking at IoT devices and um, kind of figure out what that functionality is doing. Because I know I've got an IoT device sitting right next to me right now that I found some cool JavaScript interfaces on. Unfortunately, none of them allowed me to do uh, anything crazy. It didn't result mm -hmm. in a phone, but there's definitely some good chain pieces there. Um, and you found some crazy stuff with the JavaScript interfaces before, right? Yeah, I found a ton of really interesting stuff. Um, reports that are still open after like three or four years. Are you now, serious? But, yeah, oh my gosh. But, but yes, uh, yeah, there are there are a lot of really scary things and you can see them in public projects too. I'm not going to call anybody out, but there's a public SDK that I audited very recently that has some insane sweeping capabilities through their JavaScript interfaces. Oh my gosh. And what is the, just real quick so I can add it to the notes, what is the um, JavaScript uh, interface decorator? Is it at JavaScript interface? Uh, yes, I believe it's... At JavaScript interface. I think it's just at JavaScript interface. JavaScript um, interface, okay. Yes. Yeah, okay, cool. Nice. Definitely be on the lookout for that when you're reading through the source code for an Android app. Alrighty, let me see what else we've got here in my list. Um, 
we talked a little bit about broadcasters um, and you kind of mentioned that like, for example, if you take a new picture, it'll send out like a broadcast event saying new media added to the device. What kind of ways can um, broadcasts cause vulnerabilities? Yeah, so, um, you know, broadcast receivers generally get registered. And so if okay. there's not the proper validation, similar to, you know, activities, intents, all that kind of stuff, um, if they're not doing the proper checks on who's sending a broadcast and what they're actually doing as a result of that broadcast, there can be a lot of different impl implications for what actually happens, right? So um, it really depends on sort of what that broadcast receiver is meant to do and what, what it's doing with that data, if it's actually like ingesting it or, you know, what. But, um, but yeah, you want to make sure that it's not exported if you're trying to secure your app. And if you're trying to attack a broadcast receiver, it needs to be exported. I don't know. I think it also gets implicitly exported by the intent filter stuff that we talked about. Oh, um, nice. On the, on the older versions of Android. So that's just so, something to keep in mind. So if I see an exported broadcast receiver um, and then I look it up in, is it the same sort of thing where it's like name and then you find the class and then you see the code that, that like what is the on create of broadcast receivers? Uh, yeah, I believe it actually, I think it is on create as well. Is it really? Um, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, but it would be it would be something like that. But yes, it, it's the same, you know, the name correlates to the, the class name within the package and so forth. Okay, dude, I'm definitely starting to feel a little bit more confident about looking at an Android manifest file and being able to correlate it to the actual Java code, which is big for me because once it gets to the Java code, like, you know, I could read Java code just kind of trace through it, see where the data flows, see if sketchy shit happens. But for me, it was those pieces of like, where does this Android stuff sort of fit in that got a little fuzzy? So that's that's definitely helpful. But in order to um, exploit a broadcast receiver, I'm going to have to create my own malicious app, right? Is there is there any is there any way that we can not do that? I would really like to not do that. Hmm. I mean, you can, it depends, right? So there are there are cases like I talked about, like if it's like new media being added, right? There mm -hmm. are cases sure. where you can probably exploit uh, a broadcast receiver just by doing some things yeah. on the right, like creating a file or like that. You know, there are things that could trigger um, the broadcast like implicitly through the system. But I think for the most part. So if you're trying to that. test this, if you see a broadcast receiver that looks vulnerable, are you just like opening up Android Studio and creating a malicious app? Yeah, I, th I mean, that's like your your main, like, here's my example app, you know, it just has a main activity or whatever, and you press the button and it, you know, broadcasts out what I want, and then it exploits it automatically. Gotcha. Because I think, I think there's that, and then isn't there something you can do with ADB as well that can allow you to just sort of suss it out. Yeah. So you can, and you can do this with, um, with like a lot of different things, but yeah, AM, I think is what it's called. Activity manager, ADB mm. AM, um, has a, has a bunch of different ones. A ADB PM also exists like package manager. Um, okay. and you can, you can use that to interface with a lot of different things. So, uh, AM is one that I will frequently use to launch URLs. Um, AM, let me just pull it up in my history. Sure. Yeah, so if you do am start dash a, specify the action with a, um, mm. so like android.intent.action.view, and then dash d for data, 
and then you would give it like a URL. So if you tell it start an uh brought, you know start an activity with the view and here's my input data and you give it like a URL schema, mm -hmm. that would simulate opening a nice. URL schema on the phone. Okay, and do you think like in your experience, if I were to write a report that says, "Hey, you've got a vulnerable broadcast receiver, you can do it. You can simulate this by running ADV, blah blah blah." Are some teams going to accept that or most teams going to be like, nah, just send me an app? Um, honestly, if you could, uh, it depends. Like, because you have, there's usually a barrier, right? So like the security team is handling or hacker one triage is handling like the report. Okay. And then like it eventually makes its way to the engineering team. If you have a very Android adept security team who is like aware of how this stuff works, then, mm -hmm. then they might understand what you're doing there. Um, but even still, uh, you probably will have to like explain that like this just simulates what an app malicious could do app would on, do. Yeah, yeah. And if they still push back, then maybe you just create a demo app and gotcha. Nice. All right, cool. So that is pretty much everything I had on my list regarding like native Android hacking related things. Do you have any other like native Android, cool, funky attack vectors that we should know about when we're looking at an Android app? Um, kind of a broad question, I know. But... Yeah, it is kind of a broad question. Um, but, but I think generally like the things I look for are entry points and, uh, bad practices. So mm -hmm. whether that's, um, you know, not like whether that's hard coding a secret or like hard coding an encryption string, a key or something, right? Like, um, I think we've we've briefly touched on this in a couple different areas, but yeah, it, sometimes they'll put you know a string that's quote unquote encrypted even in their like strings.xml, and then mm. they'll decrypt it somewhere else in the app in Java, and you can just see that key and you can decrypt it yourself and you can see the sensitive value. But if you were nice. to search for that normally, you wouldn't find it. Um, because it's encrypted or it's encoded in some special way. And then later it would get used by the app. So I look for that, that kind of stuff. Um, the entry points that we've talked about, like throughout this episode, um, URL schemas, services, uh, broadcast receivers, um, content providers, web views. Like these are, these are a lot of the main fundamental like ways to get in and do stuff bad within the app. Um, and then you know, just proxy the app like normal. Um, just yeah. look at so the, that look was, the endpoints. That was the next section that I had was like, so then that's like all the native Android stuff. Then we've got API hacking, right? Which is another piece that's cross-relevant in, in web stuff as well. And is there anything like in particular that's different about that? I mean, obviously we've got to do SSL pinning uh, bypass, which is just a whole another episode with Frida and all that sort of fun stuff. But um, assuming we can get past SSL uh, pinning, is there anything like any common pitfalls you see in API hacking on mobile apps? Um, the version thing that I talked about, like you might get some pushback from Android teams with like if stuff gets set by default on newer Android versions. So just be aware of what you're targeting. Like if you're doing all your testing on like a, a device that runs like Android six or seven. No, no, no. I'm talking about like API, like REST APIs. Like that's oh, 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 yeah. oh, yeah. So, uh, sorry. So, yeah. So, so with with that, I mean, honestly, mobile API hacking is usually significantly easier than web API hacking. It's just because it's untouched, or 
uh, well, it's untouched and it's also very clean, right? Like mm-hmm. mobile developers mm-hmm. aren't dealing with HTML. They're dealing with JSON or yeah, that's true. some structured response, right? So typically the APIs are very clean, very straightforward, low amounts of auth. It's usually like an auth token, maybe a cookie. Um, and it's like, you know, if you can bypass this cell pinning, proxy it, it's going to be way easier than hacking a lot of those desktop APIs that are going to use like a million different cookies that you have to tune down and it's all like react based. So it's returning HTML blobs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. So definitely, you know, don't shy away from looking at the API hacking part of mobile apps. There's a lot of certificate uh, SSL pinning uh, bypasses out there that you can use pretty easily. And then I've the published backend. one too. Oh, did you? Nice. Let me, yeah. Shoot that to me, and I'll add it to the to the show notes. Yeah, I'll shoot it to you. Um, it's I I uh, a couple years ago I did um I did a blog post with Hacker One about mobile hacking, the intro to like mobile hacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was specifically targeted around Android, um, and that has a lot of the same stuff that we talked about today. It'll go into detail about you know the structure of the Android app, like what goes into it, um, things to look for when you're de- decompiling using Frida, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I believe I actually linked the the script uh, in there, the unpin script that I use in there. But I will link it to you here as well. We'll put it in the show notes. Nice, yeah. Um, got it, it tries to be universal, um, you know, but obviously nothing's perfect. I would say nine times out of ten, this works for me. Um, yeah. Like Same. I almost never have to end up using an unpin, like a specific unpin script. Only times I really end up doing that is when the team has implemented some custom. SSL pinning somewhere else that you have to go find and bypass. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've used, you passed that script to me a couple of years ago and I've been using it religiously ever since. And I, I think maybe I've had once or twice I had to modify the, the free descript, but I mean, it's gotten me through 90% of the time for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, that is pretty much a wrap on the, uh, mobile, hacking stuff that I had to ask you here on this doc. Um, We'll definitely have to cover Frida and some of the other stuff in a different episode. Um, But with that, let's go ahead and hop into some bugs that we were going to talk about for today. Um, Let me pull mine up really quickly here. Okay. (laughs) Dude, this bug is so ridiculous. I just, it makes me smile every time I see it. Um, Okay. So this is actually very relevant to what we were talking about just a second ago. This is a web view um, vulnerability here. Okay. Oh, now. There was there was a uh, there was an Android app that I was looking at, and uh, inside of this app, if you ever leave the app, it will make you re-auth, even though your cookies are still valid. It'll just say like re-auth because you need to we need to make sure that you're you're you, right? Uh, and I'm like, okay, so that was kind of annoying, and I and I kind of went through it the first couple times that I was using the app. I just would re-auth and continue. Um, but then I was thinking like, Hey, it'd be cool if I could bypass that. So I was thinking like, okay, maybe I can launch a specific activity or something like that. And it'll bypass that sort of re-auth screen. But Joel, it's even easier than that, man. There's- oh no. What is it? <laughs> there's a, there's literally a forgot password button on the login screen, right? You, you click on that forgot password button and it pops open a web view. And the cookies for your account are are injected into that web view. Oh, so man. then you just you scroll down to the bottom. You click on the link of the company, the or not the link, the uh, the logo of the company, and it br- brings you back to the homepage. And it says "Welcome, Justin," <laughs> at the top. Oh no! 
<laughs> so Dude. then you're, you're just on the mobile version of that app, you know, the, the web version and your cookies have automatically been injected. And I was kind of looking into why that was. And it was just that they used the web view for some other parts of the application. They didn't have like a full native Android um, interface for some of the stuff. So, you know, whenever they can, they'd be lazy. They pop open that, that web view with the cookies in it. And uh, they just, whatever function, I think, I think they overrode the, or extended the WebView class and then just injected their own cookies right on in there. Um, so literally all you had to do to bypass that screen was go forgot password and then click the logo and now you're in the app. And it's so like, crazy. oh my gosh, this is nuts. So definitely, definitely check that out if you all are looking at um, mobile apps that force you to re-auth. Um, try try the forgot password functionality. Um, you know, see what kind of cookies are being injected in there, and you can see that by proxying through Burp as well. So definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah, that that reminds me of um, another great bug that I saw, where uh, essentially you would open the app and it would prompt you for a pin. Um, you know, one of those banking apps or high, higher security sure. apps that are typically asking you to reauth every time you open the app. Yeah. Um, but there was a URL schema that was available in the app. And if you launched that URL schema, it would launch into the app. It would open some you know, prompt or whatever. But if you close the pop-up, it would just take you to the homepage of the app. So no, no pin, right? So oh easy, my gosh. super easy auth bypass, you know, literally just launch the intent, close the window, you're logged in. That's it. No pin. Yeah. So the, um, these are the sort of things like these are the things we want to it's one of the main goals of, of this podcast is to just get your wheels turning about like what kind of attack vectors you have in mobile apps and web apps and that sort of thing. Anytime you see that screen in the beginning where they, you know, your, your session is definitely still valid, but they're trying to get you to put in a pin or trying to get you to re-auth. You should be you should be thinking like okay I wonder if there's any way around this can I launch custom activity can I open up a web view can I you know there's all sorts of ways so definitely be thinking about that yeah especially if if you're looking at the app and you're like putting it through Burp or putting mm -hmm. it through your proxy and you yeah. see that there's no requests going out when you enter that pin there's no like server side verification there's no ah, that's a good or one. anything that's right a good like tip. Yeah. if you're not seeing anything happen that's a pretty good indicator that it's it's all happening client side which means yeah. that you. You just have to find a way around that screen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Nice, dude. All right, why don't you hit him with yours? I'm excited for this one because this is actually a publicly disclosed report, right? Yeah, yeah, this is a publicly disclosed report. It's on the Shopify program. Uh, you can see it if you go to my my HackerOne page. Um, but yeah, essentially, there. this was during the Vancouver event um, in, with Shopify. Um, and I was looking at this, this app that Shopify has called the Point of Sale app. All right. And so the idea is that uh, you're in a store or maybe you're at checkout um, and as they're scanning items uh, with sort of the they're, they're the shop owner and the customer app, there's two apps. There's like a shop owner has one, the customer has one. You pair it at the beginning. You like scan a QR code. I think it's meant for more like a very like white glove type sale, sale experiences where... Mm. You're walking through a store, you're working with a salesperson directly. They're like, okay, would you like this? Would you like this? You can put it in your bag and then we'll check out at the end. And so uh, I, I found it very interesting the way that it paired. Um, the, the initial pairing would happen through a QR code. So you would, uh, as the shop owner, you'd show a QR code. The person you're shopping, who's shopping, they would, the customer would scan the QR code. Then it pairs. And then anything that the owner adds into their cart uh, would show up on the shopper's cart, right? And so that that I found pretty interesting. And so initially I, I took a look at 
what is this QR code? Like what is actually encoded inside of it? How does that work? Um, you know, what, what data is being trans transferred here so that these two can actually communicate. Um, and, and did so, you just like you open like a QR scanner app and then just get like the text version of the QR code? Is that pretty much what you did? Yeah. Uh, ZXing, um, has a website and that that's pretty good. Uh, but yeah, you just any QR scanner and just like dump out the QR data from it. Nice. That works. Yeah. So then, um, what I noticed is that it was a URL. It was, uh, like it, it said WS colon slash slash a host, like an IP address and then a port and then like this long string. And I was like, huh, that that's odd. And it's odd. It was odd to me for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that it's a web socket, not a secure web socket. So WSS, which would imply TCP or sorry, uh, TLS, um, and encryption on top of the connection. And also that it was like connecting to an IP address directly, which was a little bit odd to me. Um, so right away, I came up with sort of this attack scenario that, okay, like what if I'm a malicious attacker? Um, I ARP spoof, I take over the IP address, I kick this other person off, um, and then I can just like put stuff into the cart. Um, mm. And initially they were like, well, that's kind of like expected behavior that like as the shopper, you could put items in the cart and then you could like have a total that's running different from what the user sees. Sure. Um, and so uh, they, they closed my report as NA and I, I was like, hmm, I, I feel like there's, there's still something here. There's still like this, this feels like a little bit too weird behavior for, for it to just, for me to just leave it at this. And so I kept poking and I kept poking and I kept poking. Um, and I was reading like the code in the app, like how do these, like how does this server communicate? Like it starts with a server, it connects with like a web socket, it like sends messages back and forth whenever you add items into the into the cart and stuff. And and do you need to be on the same like LAN for this to work? Because I'm looking through this and I'm and I'm I'm just kind of not seeing how. I guess maybe they like automatically connect you to the Wi-Fi or something like that when you scan a QR code or something. But you'd have to be on the same LAN for this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so you have to be on the same network. Like that, I guess that's just how it's designed to work. Um, but yeah, it would have like your local IP address, um, your port, an initial public key, and then a nonce that like gets tied together. And then those get generated and it uses essentially a rolling key from there where you start with an initial agreed upon key and then each message sends back a, a new key that it uses to sign the next message and so forth. Okay, um, gotcha. Right. And so I was looking at how, how it worked and I was looking specifically at the method where it receives messages from, uh, from the server. Um, and this would be like, you're the customer receiving messages from the person who owns the store. Um, and in this function, there's an if statement and it checks, okay, if the message type that's coming in is in this enum, then do specific thing with it. After that if statement, there was a fallback that if it doesn't uh, have that type, that message type, it just resets the initial receiver public key and it starts that, that rolling handshake over, right? So it would be like, as if you rescan the QR code again for the beginning, and now you have a new key to use for all the rest of your messages going forward. Um, cause otherwise you wouldn't like, if you intercepted this in the middle as an attacker, you would start receiving like the other key, but you don't have the previous key to encrypt the message to send back. So it would just fail. Right. But because it has this fallback after like if it has an unknown message type then it'll just reset that key and then it'll move forward so then you could just say oh here's like bogus message type reset the public key to my attacker key and then the device goes okay great now i know 
now I can receive messages and then you could send it known messages and you would take over that entire session seamlessly. Right. Wow. And so, so that the team, it was funny because I, I, when I submitted this, the team, they like, they, they triaged it like immediately. And I was like, wow, that was like, <laughs> I was like really fast. And I went and I talked with the engineer who happened to be on site. Cause this was at the Shopify office. And, uh, he, and he was like, oh yeah. Like as soon as I, I saw like your write up and I saw where the like line of code that you pointed to, I realized like that we had made the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, I love that about live hacking events. You know, I love that extra piece of like, you know, you have the team right there and you get to discuss it with them. And you also get to see that look of horror on their face though, when something <laughs> does work. Like that's, that's an amazing feeling. Yeah. yeah. Now I will say the one thing that really helped with this is I had the source code open in a text editor and I was renaming functions as I was going to understand, like, as I was going through, I was like, oh, okay, this function does this thing. Cause they were all obfuscated uh, methods. And I started renaming, okay, this does this action. This does this thing to make it more readable. Nice. Um, and the reason that I knew that that function was setting the public key again, the, the handshake key essentially is that I had renamed it elsewhere. Nice, I had renamed dude. it when the, when the server in the start function, I had renamed that function to set receiver public key. And then as I was scrolling through the receive message function, I was like, oh, hang on a second. It's calling that set receiver pu uh, public key function because it renamed it everywhere. And that made it so much easier to wow. just tie those two things together. That is a great tip. And that is something that I never do. So you, I assume that's a function in JetX, yeah? Actually, that's a function in VS Code. I assume oh, really? Jadix can probably do it. Yeah. Um, but that's like one of the big perks of the combo that I use, which is deobfuscation, deobfuscation flags on Jadix. Mm -hmm. And then I open the folder in Visual Studio Code. Yeah. Because the deobfuscation flags on Jadix, um, I, I, I mentioned this, but I didn't really go into it. Essentially, it makes it so there's a minimum length for uh, identifiers. So a method, oh. for example, common Android obfuscation renames all the methods to like A, B, C, yeah, A, dude, A, A, B, A, C. It's impossible to read. But Jadex, since it knows that this is pretty common, um, it has uh, like a deobfuscation thing, which generates random unique names for anything below like a certain threshold. Nice. So if you say that the minimum length has to be three characters, anything under three characters will get auto renamed. And you'll see like A becomes M012345A, right? And so it generates a unique number and M for method that says like this specific method is this, right? And then you can look through your code and you can search for M012345A and you can see where that A is called, not all the other A methods that nice, have been defined. dude. We need something and... like that for JavaScript files, man, because they do the same thing in JavaScript. <laughs> it drives me nuts. I know, right? Oh, yeah. There's a couple of JavaScript obfuscators out there, but they're they're not very great. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other side to that is that, um, like I said, you can rename stuff. So if you open the whole folder in VS Code, typically, not in all cases, but typically, it can successfully parse the the code out into like the language server, and then it will. You can do, you know, jump to definition, all that kind of stuff. Nice. Along with that, it can do refactoring, right? So you can say, I want to rename this function everywhere within my code. And it will search. It'll make sure that it's all renamed. Then it'll change that name everywhere within your code base where you automatically, you just, I think you press F2. Um, and you can use that to your advantage. Um, and that's what I did here. Nice, dude. That's super clutch tip. Um, <clears throat> we are 
very, very far into this episode. Um, so tell you what, man, let's let's call it a wrap here. Uh, well, we won't go through all of these all of these tips. We'll save these juicy tips for another episode. But Joel, thanks so much for sharing your your knowledge uh, about mobile hacking stuff. And we'll definitely have to do a part two sometime where we talk about Frida. And yeah. we didn't even touch iOS apps during this one. So I'm excited. Dude, yeah, yeah. There's so much more to talk about. So I appreciate uh, you giving yeah. me the time to, to just talk. Of course, you're not a guest, Joel. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> like we have this sort of guest host interaction here. But yeah. All right, cool, man. That's a wrap. Yeah. Yeah.